At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, of course, we have the Iowa caucuses. We also have an expert on all things that can go wrong with voting in America. This weekend on Election Day in November, Rick Hassan has been worrying about that. We'll speak with him later in the show. Also, this Sunday is the Oscars, Hollywood's own elections, and the nominees for Best Director are all men. Is that because there are no good women directors? John Powers thinks there are some other explanations. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first, our man John Nichols spent the last several days in Iowa. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation, and his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. <laughs> Good times, my friend. <laughs> well, we are recording this the afternoon following the Iowa caucus meetings, and the Iowa Democratic Party has not yet reported results problems with the new app, they say. They say there's a paper trail and the caucus chairs has the numbers. So is this a disaster or is it just a delay? It's a flaming disaster. It's like a, a truck on fire driving through a forest. <laughs> okay. It's as bad as it gets, my friend. You're absolutely right. The Iowa Democratic Party and its thousands of grassroots volunteers across the state have a process that, that is pretty fair and pretty functional, not perfect, and can be much criticized for a lot of other reasons. But, you know, when you get into those caucus rooms, they're pretty meticulous. They check the names off. They get people into their proper corners. They count really carefully. I went to one last night. It was, it was run very responsibly. And then they wrote those numbers down and they double checked them and they had the chairs of all the local campaigns there. So I believe strongly that the results exist. Yeah, It just appears that the leadership of the Iowa Democratic Party can't find them, <laughs> um, or at least they're in the process of searching for them. And the reason it's a flaming, scorching, out-of-control disaster is this. John, I don't know if you've heard that, that we live in modern times when things move pretty fast. <laughs> and so you've got the whole world. I was, I was doing commentary for BBC last night. you got the whole world paying attention. You've got every candidate or just about every candidate in spending, you know, pretty much every penny they can get their hands on. Um, you got both of the national media decamped to Atumwa. And so you've created this incredible event and you really only have one job, John. And that your job is once you got all of this, you claimed the concession to be the first in the country. You're going to make the whole thing happen. It all starts with you. You're going to vet the candidates. You're going to do take on this incredible responsibility. And then on the night when you're going to do the reveal, right, you say, oh, none of it worked. It's a complete screw up. It's a meltdown. We have quality control issues. We have inconsistencies. I'm sorry. The world isn't going to wait for you to get it right. I know that we will. We, we follow <laughs> politics. 
But the truth of the matter is that on this day that we're talking, we're talking on, on the day after, this is the day that belongs in the overall scheme of our media system and how we communicate about politics and governance. This day belongs to a Democrat who won the Iowa caucuses and perhaps to a couple other Democrats who did really well and get to claim a little bit of momentum. And it also is the day where we analyze if any of the front runners did very, very poorly. And if you lose that day, then the world moves on. And look what happens. Tuesday night is State of the Union address. Wednesday is, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, and there's the impeachment vote. Then you're up in New Hampshire. And so their incompetence, and let us be sure, you know, there's, there's only one word for this, and that's incompetence. Their incompetence has impacted the small, the democratic life of this country. We do have some tentative partial numbers. Jeff Weaver of the Bernie's uh, campaign released some numbers uh, Tuesday at midday. This is after realignment. Uh, Bernie, 29% of the popular vote. Pete Buttigieg, 24. Elizabeth Warren, 21. Biden, 12. Uh, This is not the delegate count. This is incomplete. This is one campaign's survey. Uh, But it's not inconsistent with what the polls were showing, is it? No, it's not. It's also not inconsistent with what their earlier release at the 40% level was. What the Sanders campaign is doing is, you know, literally talking to their precinct captains. They had a lot of them all over the state. And I suspect that the data that they are putting out is accurate. What we can say is this, this pattern does seem to suggest that Bernie Sanders, if it holds, had a what's referred to as a clean win, you know, a pretty substantial yeah. victory. If he's five points ahead of his next closest candidate, that's pretty good in Iowa. Uh, you said that uh, the uh, counting of at the Iowa caucuses seems very fair and straightforward and honest, but of course there's a lot of very undemocratic things about the whole caucus system. First of all, there's no secret ballot and no absentee voting. People who are ex-felons are not allowed to vote by the Iowa Democratic Party, and there's 40,000 of those people in Iowa. And, of course, a lot of other people can't participate because you have to show up in person and spend, you know, a few hours there. That's people who work work weekday nights, people who can't get child care, people who have disabilities, people who are out of town. So... A lot of us feel it would be a good thing if this was the last of the Iowa caucuses. Where do you stand on this? Well, in many ways, it doesn't matter, John, because I believe the Iowa Democratic Party has settled the issue. I cannot imagine that there's going to be another round of uh, caucuses in Iowa. This is not going to be forgotten by anyone. But if you ask me, yes, I think we, we I believe always that we should get rid of them. I love reporting from Iowa, but. In a a country that is rapidly diversifying and in a Democratic Party that relies overwhelmingly on uh, people of color as critical voters for their uh, victories in key states across the country when they do win, to begin the process in a pair of overwhelmingly white states, that being Iowa and New Hampshire, is just that it's not appropriate. It's not it's not a way that you ought to do this. And so right off the bat, there's a problem there. The second thing, though, is one that gives New Hampshire at least a little bit more of an argument, and that is that they have a primary. Yeah. Um, in, in Iowa, a caucus, as you suggest, is a long process. It takes time the way they do it. Ultimately, 
it's not fair. It's not right. On the way to the caucus in Dubuque, I stopped by a gas station to, to, you know, purchase some fine dining items. (laughs) And, and there were three women behind the counter. It was a busy gas station just outside Dubuque. I said, are you going to caucus tonight? And they, you know, they kind of laughed and they know we're working, you know? Yeah. What do you mean? We have jobs. And, um, and so uh, that's an absurdity uh, for a party that claims to, or at least tries to at its best represent working class folks to create a process that, that literally excludes people who work in the evening and you know, who works a lot in the evening, you know, working moms, there's a lot of them, you know, and, and you're kind of exactly the people that you want at caucuses. Also, even the people that make it to the caucuses, a friend of mine, it was the first time she had gone to a caucus and she was looking at all the kids because she's a young mom. She was looking at all the kids and she was saying, this is pretty rough to have like a three-year-old here for two and a half hours telling them to behave. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's just not a workable system. It, it's time to end it. Luckily, the Iowa Democratic Party has made a more powerful argument than <laughs> I will ever make against it. Okay. Well, there was, of course... One candidate who wasn't there, the uh, the elephant in the room, Michael Bloomberg, his whole strategy has been that if there is chaos, if there is meltdown, if there is a disruption, especially of the center, that is his opening. And the very what seems to be the poor showing of Biden is exactly what Bloomberg needed. And he announced here Tuesday morning that he's doubling his campaign spending and he announced he's going to increase his paid staff to 2,000. I think that's even bigger than your staff, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, truthfully, John, I'm still in the high short (laughs) three digits. Um, But uh, no, it's the thing. You know, it's like only in the American Democratic Party in 2020 could you have a situation where like a 70, I don't know what the exact is, a 77 year old white guy doesn't quite cut it. And so immediately, you know, the elites of the party say, well, we must find another 77 year old white guy <laughs> um, who isn't Bernie Sanders. Um, exactly. And, and so, no, it's, a, this is an absurdity. The, the Bloomberg thing, except uh, we now live in the era where absurdity is the definition of our politics. And so you are exactly right. The primary beneficiaries of the Iowa screw up are Mike Bloomberg, who can simply say, you know what? These people don't even know how to run caucuses. It's a good thing I didn't go to Iowa. And it it will be heard, not because it's a good argument, but because he has the ability to amplify at an incredibly high level. And this is really, this goes, you know, you know, John, that I've written a lot of books about media over the years with Bob McChesney. Yeah. Um, this goes to a core media reality. And that is that um, uh, the Iowa caucuses were supposed to produce a winner about 10 o'clock, maybe 11 o'clock last night. That was going to go on all the news cycles. It would own the morning. Everybody got in a car to go to work. Everybody turned the TV on. Everybody picked up a paper. You know, somebody wins. In this case, probably Bernie Sanders. And that's a big deal because that person then, gets a wave of new attention. We pay a lot of attention to politics. There's, there's a lot of people in America who, you know, oh, this guy won the Iowa caucus. Maybe I should check him out, right? It's a different, you know, level of engagement per se. So it's a big deal. It's also a vetting. It suggests that a person can win Iowa. Maybe they can win it again in November. And then there are the other candidates, the second and third tier candidates, who maybe do better than expected, like an Amy Klobuchar or an Andrew Yang. They have bragging rights. But because of this screw up, 
you lose all that, right? They don't, you know, if it's Sanders is the winner, he doesn't get the, you know, that big bump, that big attention. Uh, Amy Klobuchar doesn't get to say, well, I almost beat Joe Biden. Uh, Andrew Yang doesn't get to say that, you know, as the guy who came in as a complete unknown, he got, you know, looks like about 5% of the votes, at least in the initial stages of these caucuses. Um, and that, that steals that from them. It steals the spotlight from them. And that actually amplifies Bloomberg's money more. Yeah. It gives him more ability to, you know, kind of wedge himself in because the free media that might have gone to the Iowa winner or winners isn't there. And the other winner, by the way, is the guy who gets to give a State of the Union address <sighs> 24 hours after you're supposed to have an Iowa winner. So the centrists, the Wall Street faction, let us call them, of the Democratic Party, if Biden is sinking, they can choose between Bloomberg and Mayor Pete. And Mayor Pete, of course, gave the victory speech last night that he had prepared, even though it appears from the polls he came in second to Bernie. John, I just want to interrupt your question. Yeah. Because you're something of a media scholar yourself. Yes. If you you don't know that you won, (laughs) and in fact— are pretty sure you might have lost, but yet you go give a victory speech. Is that fake news? I think I think you're onto something there. I want to look at Mayor Pete's victory speech because it seems so vapid and so empty. He says we all need to work together in order to defeat uh, Trump. Uh, he is obviously criticizing Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren for so-called dividing the party. That is his pitch. Aside from the fact that he claimed victory when he didn't win victory, what did you think of the content of his pitch? Well, I'm not a fan. Pete Buttigieg got into this race uh, a long time ago. He's been basically angling for it for the last couple of years. Um, uh, And he sort of seemed interesting. He talked about expanding the Supreme Court a little bit, some things like that. And so he thought, Okay, maybe this guy I don't agree with on everything, but he's at least interesting. Um, he's essentially dumbed his message down now to a you know kind of last moderate standing uh, unity pitch that uh, suggests that that if making the nominee, he's going to pull everything together and it's just going to be great. That doesn't resonate in our politics today. Last question here: Democrats are full of anxiety about who's going to be their candidate in November and whether they can defeat Donald Trump on November 4th. Did anything happen in Iowa on Monday to make Democrats less anxious about November and more confident about beating Trump? Well, I'd love to be glib and say not a thing. It's a total disaster because I really do want to emphasize that the people who are given positions of responsibility in the Democratic Party really don't seem to know how to do this. But if I'm honest, I have to say that that youth vote should be encouraging. The fact that uh, in many precincts, you had a 25, 30, 40 percent increase in young voters across Iowa. It looks like at the very least, it's, it's going to be the largest increase in young voters in, in a very long time. However, they came for a couple of candidates. Uh, when I went into those rooms, you know, it was for Bernie Sanders for Andrew Yang, who got a lot of young people out, he did very, very well at that. And for Elizabeth Warren, uh, that was that was primarily where it was at. There were not a lot of young people there for Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, Biden. There's just a lesson in that. You you might want to look for a candidate that can actually attract young people to the polls, because there's an awful lot of evidence that if you don't nominate the right candidate, you're going to have a very hard time with a mobilization. 
John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, as always, John, on this unfortunate day. Oh, you say unfortunate. I say, you know, journalism, full employment project. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Democrats are full of anxiety about the November election. Whoever they support, they wake up anxious and they go to bed worried that somehow Donald Trump will not be defeated on November 3rd. And now we have more things to worry about. As of this hour on Tuesday afternoon, we have no results from the Iowa caucuses. And so we turn to the man who wrote the book on elections melting down, Rick Hassan. He's a colleague of mine at UC Irvine, where he's Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science. His opinion pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, and Slate. And he writes the Election Law blog. It's an essential source on voting. His new book is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. We reached him today in New York City. Rick Hassan, welcome. It's great to be with you. So the Iowa Democratic Party says they have paper ballots in precinct totals, and it's just a matter of time until we get the final correct results. Uh, so is Iowa a disaster, or is it just a delay? Well, I think it's a disaster. If Iowa Democratic Party officials had announced it's going to take two days to count the votes, uh, then I think everyone's expectations would have been different, and we just would have recognize that sometimes things take time. And of course, they were using new technology and they were also using uh, you know, a new, new set of vote totals, three different vote totals uh, in the election. And so had it just been a delay, it would be fine. But instead, we had the expectation we were going to get the results. And then there's an unexplained delay. Then all of a sudden, we're told that there are quality control issues, which sounds kind of vague in corporate speak. And then, you know, we ultimately find out that there were all kinds of problems with how the results were reported. And that, of course, created an opening for people like uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager to claim that the system was being rigged, that there was some kind of stealing of the election, maybe to hurt Bernie Sanders, who Trump would like to run against. And so I think it was a disaster, and it didn't have to be this way. Until I read your book, I never worried about some other potential disasters. I never worried about a cyber attack on the power grid on election day. I never worried about massive blackouts in the big cities that the Democrats need to win, like Philadelphia or Miami or Detroit. Could that happen? So I think technologically it could happen. Uh, there was very good reporting by the Wall Street Journal on how we believe the Russians have been able to capture passwords and get into systems that control electrical power. We also know that the Russians actually launched cyber attacks against Ukraine back in 2015, and they were able to bring down the power for a certain number of hours and even locked out the system that was supposed to override that kind of attack. So I think we're technologically vulnerable. We're also vulnerable in terms of our political and legal system in that most states do not have a good plan B if there's some kind of terrorist attack or cyber attack or natural disaster which prevents voting in all or part of a state on a presidential election day. We don't know what the rules would be. There'll be fighting over that. It could go to court, you know, and the courts have divided on party lines. So you can kind of easily imagine the nightmare scenarios, a lot of which would be preventable if we had rules in place to deal with this kind of attack. Well, just to stick with the cyber attack for one more minute, I hope the people in charge of cybersecurity for the power grid on Election Day uh, have read your book 
Can you tell us anything about that? Well, the good news is after my book went to print, there was a story that U.S. cybersecurity officials are actually doing some kind of simulations to game out uh, how to try to deal with such a situation. So the issue is certainly on the radar. Uh, you know, the problem is it might not be that. It could be something else. Uh, 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 and we're trying to take preparations so that the things that happened in 2016 don't happen again, but then we're fighting the last war, and we're not thinking about what might be new and destructive in 2020. Another thing that keeps my friends up at night is worrying that the loser, Donald Trump, would refuse to concede and instead argue that the election was stolen or rigged, especially if there was something like what happened in Iowa this week. One possibility is not that Trump refuses to concede, but that he declares victory because the vote totals on election night might have him ahead in a swing state like Pennsylvania. We know that Pennsylvania is going to be using new rules involving absentee ballots. You used to have to have an excuse to cast them. You no longer need to have to have an excuse to cast them. Election officials are already warning that it could take days for those ballots to be counted. We also know that those later ballots have tended in other states to be heavily Democratic. And so we saw in California, for example, in 2018, ballot totals shift from Republican leads to Democratic leads. And so Trump could claim victory. He could say that the, uh, he won the election in Pennsylvania, if that's the key swing state in 2020. And ultimately, the election officials will say, no, he didn't. And we could have a protracted fight. We could even see Congress getting involved if there are competing slates of electors to the Electoral College sent over to Congress. It could get very messy. And I should say, none of the things we're talking about are likely. But I think just like with a nuclear meltdown, where there's a small risk of a catastrophe, you really need to think about all of these contingencies and ask what you could do to try to minimize the risk of these things happening. Well, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about Republican threats to voting and the way vote suppression in the red states has been their their strategy for a couple of decades, making it harder to register and, and to vote. But you say there are big problems in voting in the big cities controlled by Democrats. Fairness requires that we ask you to explain. So I think, you know, one issue is, are there deliberate attempts to try to make it harder to register and vote? And I think there's no question that in some Republican states they have passed laws and imposed policies that have been aimed at making it harder to register and to vote. Some of those have been more successful than others in terms of effect. But we do know that incompetence in election administration is an equal opportunity problem. Both Democrats and Republicans who control elections might act incompetently. Just look at the recent Iowa example. This was run by the uh, Iowa Democratic Party, so there's no Republicans to blame for this. Uh, what happened to the Democrats this week in the election uh, in Iowa? Uh, and so uh, it turns out that we get a lot of attention paid to poor election administration in big American cities controlled by Democrats, not because Democrats are more likely than Republicans to be incompetent, but because that's where the votes are. And if it's a close election and there's a big problem and you're looking to figure out what's going on, attention is going to focus to the big city. So I talked, for example, about Broward County, Florida, and Brenda Snipes and how she ran the elections down there, and some other examples of big cities, the city of Detroit, when it ran the 2016 election, and how poorly they ran that election, that they couldn't even conduct a recount that Jill Stein had tried to pay for. So we have had these situations where it's Democrats running the show, and they're just running the show very badly. And let's talk about what the Republicans call ballot security measures. Sounds good. 
Uh, what were ballot security measures and why are they coming back? Back in the early 1980s, the Democratic Party sued the Republican Party over measures that the Republicans advertised as trying to ensure the security of the vote, ballot integrity, which sounds like a good thing, but they were actually efforts to intimidate minority voters uh, at the polling place. For example, they were things like sending off-duty police officers in uniforms to patrol around uh, minority dominated polling places. And in 1982, the Republican National Committee agreed it wouldn't engage in any of these activities. It signed a, a court order. It agreed to what is called a consent decree. And that consent decree had been extended and had been in place until 2017, when the courts finally lifted it. The Democrats argued that Donald Trump and his activities in this area engaged in a kind of vote suppression. And the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit agreed that Trump had engaged in some activities that could be seen as trying to suppress the vote, but said that wasn't the RNC. The RNC is an independent entity for this purpose and is now free to engage in these activities. It's free to engage in legitimate ballot security activities uh, for purposes of securing the vote. So we'll see what happens in 2020. But this is going to be the first election where that consent decree is gone, as are the protections of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, those clearance provisions, which said that states with a history of racial discrimination in voting had to get permission from the federal government before doing things like shutting down a polling place. The Supreme Court got rid of that uh, voter protective provision in its 2013 opinion in Shelby County versus Holder. You write in your book, Election Meltdown, about something called the Election Administrator's Prayer. What is it? Well, so the best hope that none of what I'm describing is going to come to pass is not that we're going to get our act together. I hope we will, but it's not that. It's instead that the election won't be close. Because if the election is not close, this is the election administrator's prayer. Lord, let this election not be close. If that's what we're uh, banking on, it's because if the election uh, returns are so overwhelming in one direction or another, even if there have been some attempts to mess with it, or even if there's been some incompetence, it's not going to uh, be determinative in the outcome and people will move on, uh, right? It's not since Bush versus Gore back almost 20 years ago that we had a problem as serious as to call a presidential election into question. We've had other smaller elections that have been called into question. Uh, so let's hope that whatever happens in uh, 2020, that it's not a close election and we can squeak through even with the problems that seem to be on the scene. So you've told us about about many of the ways the November election could be sabotaged, undermined, uh, distorted. Thank you for that. What are the top two or three things that could be done between today and November 3rd to reduce these threats to American democracy? Well, some of the things are uh, beyond our control, cybersecurity issues that are really in the hands of the government. But uh, putting that aside, you know, one of the things is the role of the news media. I think there has to be an education function to let people understand that, that we may not know who the president is uh, on election night. It might take a few days and that it's normal for vote totals to change and for vote totals to shift from one candidate to another. I think managing people's expectations is important. And it's also important now, with about nine months before the election, that state election administrators are looking for those weak links, those places that have had perennial problems, and do what they need to in terms of poll worker training, in terms of adequate 
resources in terms of voting machines that have uh, the ability to conduct a recount to a hand-marked paper ballots is kind of the gold standard here. There's lots that we could put in place before November so that the, some of those risks can be uh, uh, mitigated. One last thing, a personal question. My friends wake up full of dread and go to bed full of anxiety about what could happen on November 3rd. You are a professional on, on the subject. How bad are you feeling right now about November 3rd? Well, I spend my days talking about it now, so I'm quite concerned. But, you know, I tend to be a worrier, and I'm hoping that the worrying is for nothing. I'm hoping that Election Day will be a relatively quiet day for me, because if people are calling me, it means uh, something is going wrong. Rick Hessen, his new book is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Rick, thanks for giving us the bad news about elections in America. Thank you. We record our show in Los Angeles, where the big news is not just about politics. It's about the Oscars. The newspapers here are filled with full-page ads for nominated films, and the streets are lined with billboards doing the same thing. For 2020, the nominees for Oscar for Best Director are all men. In the entire history of the Oscars, only one woman has ever won Best Director, Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker. And yet there have been lots of excellent films directed by women. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large for Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR. And he's been a longtime film critic for Vogue and before that for the LA Weekly. John Powers, welcome back. Happy to be here. Well, the leading female contender in 2019 for Best Director was Greta Gerwig for directing Little Women. She didn't get nominated. How do you think Little Women compared to Martin Scorsese for The Irishman, Quentin Tarantino for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, Sam Mendes for 1917, and Todd Phillips for Joker? Well, I, I probably two or three of the nominees probably should have been ahead of her, in all honesty. You know, I think Scorsese's better. Bong is certainly better. I think you could have some doubts if you were really thinking about it, about the film that may actually win, which is 1917, which is the sort of long-take version of World War One, where what's missing from it is history and everything. I mean, you know, to, to actually turn World War One into the coolest kind of video game-looking thing, all in one shot, which is actually made up of 77 shots, which you cut together so that every shot looks beautiful. So, you know, rather than being a, a masterpiece of staging, which is what it would take to do that, in fact, it's, it's a masterpiece of editing together cleverly. You know, probably she could have been up there. But in truth, I find it hard, partly because I'm skeptical about the Oscars to begin with as a measure of anything. So Good. starting from that premise that, it, that the Oscars are kind of BS <laughs> and that they've been wrong through history, so why, why should this year be any different? I don't think it's some sort of symptomatic point that she's not one of the nominees. You know, you might think that if two years ago she hadn't been nominated as Best Director for Lady Bird. You know, so her previous film did get her nominated. So it's not as though she's been cheated historically. And in fact, some years, maybe given the fact that women aren't allowed to make nearly as many films as men, it's not surprising that they wouldn't be up for awards. When you actually spend, let's say, the first 120 years of a medium where in huge parts of the world there are still cultures where no woman has ever made a film. So when you start that and then you realize that probably 
in terms of the catchment of film history, there are a thousand films by men for every one by women. And you extrapolate to now, it's quite possible that you wouldn't have one of the five nominees be a woman. In a film that, in other measures, has done very well. It's incredibly well-reviewed. It's making lots of money. It's advanced her career. People are saying she's a better director than her husband. I mean, you know, every possible way in which the film could be a triumph for her, it has been, except for awards. Of course, we're talking here about the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and what they consider to be worthy films. It's interesting if you look at The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 1917, Parasite and Joker. These are films that feature violence by men. Three of them are buddy pictures where the women barely exist. And there was that one Oscar winner that was directed by a woman, Hurt Locker, would you say that was a buddy picture about violent men? Well, it, it, well, that, that makes it seem too optimistic. I mean, it, it was about, you know, pathological men who get addicted to war. But nevertheless, I mean, it was pointed out at the time, you know, not unfairly, that isn't it interesting that the first film ever directed by a woman, if you said that a man had directed it, no one would have paused for a second and thought, really? You know, whereas if you take an example of another nominee— The Piano by Jane Campion. And and somebody said, a man directed that. You might pause and think, really? A man directed that? You know, was he trying to make some point? Is he trying to, like, you know, woo the the ladies by seeming so progressive? But in the case of Hurt Locker, what's great is that she's following the kinds of movies she likes to make. Because that's actually what you'd want women to be able to do, which is to make the movies they like and want to make, rather than have to make things about women's rights or all the things that make a lot of films by outsider groups kind of depressing is they have to make films about how their group is being treated rather than about individual characters. And let's also note that 19 of the 20 acting nominees in the Oscars this year are white people. Jimmy Kimmel pointed out that's fewer people of color than there are in Trump's cabinet. That, 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 that's, that's true. And in, in fact, rather than being outraged for Greta Gerwig, you know, I think that Lupita Nyong'o in Us is sensationally good. It's probably the best performance of the year. And it's interesting that she didn't get nominated by people who are an academy that's clearly worried about seeming racist and sexist. And I think that's because there are all these other agendas that go into academy thinking. One of them is that horror movies aren't awards worthy. So Us is a horror movie. So by definition, almost no matter how good you are in a horror movie, you probably won't get a nomination for it. And I think that's what happened here because she's really great in the movie. Well, you mentioned the piano, and that takes us to the recent publication by the BBC of the results of their survey of the 100 best films directed by women. They polled 368 film experts, half men, half women, all around the world from 84 different countries. Each voter was asked to list their 10 favorite films, And what was the number one best film ever directed by a woman in the history of the world, according to the BBC poll of critics? The Piano by Jane Campion. And in fact, it seems in a way almost the natural winner, which is to say that it has all the things that would bring together a winner. It is about women's subjects and about a woman finding her expressive voice. So thematically, it's perfect. Yet it feels like a big movie movie. It also feels like an auteur movie. You don't think that this was, this was hatched up in some studio. So it's got the big grandeur 
of the kind of thing that would be the greatest. It's got the theme, and then it's got the individuality. Oddly enough, it's not my favorite of her films. And when I talk to critics, including, you know, lots of women critics, none of them think that's her best movie or her most interesting movie. But that's often the case, is, is that people often are, are championed or like win awards for something that isn't their best work, but the thing that seems most like the best work. And that is that. And what do you consider her best, Jane Campion's best work? I think the best thing she ever did was a thing called An Angel at My Table, which I don't know if you've ever seen. It's, it's, it's a two-hour and 50-minute thing based on the, the autobiography of Janet Frame, the New Zealand writer. And it is maybe the greatest biopic ever made. It's really fascinating and interesting and offbeat and weird and all the things that Campion are. Feminist, but in, but in a kind of skewed way. Because, you know, Jane Campion is one, maybe the only director in the world who, when you're trying to think of who's the sexiest guy alive, would choose Harvey Keitel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and once again, that's proof of how individual she is is that lots of other people, you think like, in the piano, is Holly Hunter going to be with Brad Pitt or George Clooney? No, it's Harvey Keitel, because she, she likes that kind of funky thing. She likes Mickey Rourke. You know, she's drawn, drawn to a certain kind of masculinity, which I think is very interesting and individual. I would just like to add about Jane Campion, her recent miniseries, Top of the Lake, which she created, wrote, and directed. It's about a female detective in New Zealand that stars Elizabeth Moss. I thought it was wonderful, and lots of other people did, too. I did, too. It's a, it's a, it's a great series, and it brings together all of those things. And, and what's interesting about it is that it brings together all of her themes. It actually gives her room to be expansive in developing them. It lets her do her weird tonal things, because she's rather like David Lynch. One thing she shares in common is they have this really weird sense of humor and they just fold it in and they know they're being funny. Sometimes people think that people like David Lynch and, and Jane Campion don't know when they're being funny. They know when they're being funny. So they have this dark, askew sense of humor, which they then mix up with incredibly dark psychosexual material. And that TV series in two seasons does it really, really well. I mean, it's, it's probably the best thing she's done for, for quite a while. I, I talked to her at one point at, at, at Cannes when it showed and she was just saying, television's easier to do now. You know, with, with film, they, too many people don't want to give you money unless they have control over the stuff. They worry about everything. In television, you actually get to control it much more yourself now. And so it's a freer medium. Jane Campion's The Piano, the number one best film directed by a woman on the BBC poll of world critics. The female director who got the most votes was Agnes Varda, her film, Cleo, from five to seven, was number two. That was made way back in 1962 and was only her second film. She died recently. Why do you think Agnes Varda is the most popular female director among world critics? There are a variety of reasons. You know, you start with the fact that she was part of the French New Wave. And that not only means that that gives her a certain cachet just in itself, but in fact, it means she was always an interesting and exciting filmmaker. Her first film, made in the 50s, is a kind of mixture of, of, of fiction and documentary. So she was already bending, bending form. Cleo from 5 to 7, if you've never seen it, takes place over basically the two hours, and it's actually 90 minutes in the film, the time that, that a, a, a kind of second-rate singer is wandering around Paris waiting to hear whether or not she, how her cancer test has come. And it's partly a, just a tour of Paris at its most 
1962 spectacular, which is great to see. But it's also about a woman like more or less transforming herself over the course of a film. It's a, it's a really wonderful film. But Varda was maybe among filmmakers I've met in my life the most interested in everything. You know, she made films about black power. She made she made films about happenings. Wherever she would go, she'd be interested. I was once at a dinner where she came in and she was really upset because she'd lost the video camera that she'd been shooting stuff. And everybody said, well, what was on it? And she said, well, she'd just been talking to Sharon Stone. Oh. You know, that, <laughs> that in fact, Varda was so great because she... She just loved almost everything. When she was in L.A., she always would go to the, the Simon Museum because the Norton Simon had stuff that you couldn't see anyplace else, so she would always go. There was a great story when she died that was printed in The New Yorker about her talking about how she and her husband, Jacques Demy, who was also a great director, made Umbrellas of Sherberg, how one, one time in the 60s, they went to visit Godard and Anna Karina in a country house where they're vacationing. And they said, well, what was that like? And she said, well, the thing is that Godard and Karina basically sat in the house all day and that she and Jacques would go out. And she said, with, with Jacques and me, when we go someplace, we wanted to do everything there is to do there. Oh. Okay. And that mentality informs her films. So there's this kind of life so that she was actually what she, she made movies for 50 years. You know, she made a good movie when she was 90. Very few people you can say that of. That's why she won. Do you consider Cleo from 5 to 7 her, her best film? She made so many. I mean, I love The Gleaners, the documentary. Yeah, The, the Gleaners is really good. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to, to distinguish. And she, you know, she also made the film, I can't believe, the Vagabond. I don't know if you ever saw that. With My wife's favorite is yes, The Vagabond. Is, yes. No, you know, and they are all different in tone. But The Gleaners is like, that goes back to the point I was making, which is about she's looking at peasants gleaning in the fields and then sees herself as a kind of gleaner of experiences and ideas too. In, in terms of a person who just embodies and embraces loving the world and loving cinema, that's her. Talking about women directors, we've talked about Greta Gerwig. We have talked about Agnes Varda. We have talked about Jane Campion. On that BBC list of the 100 greatest films directed by women of all in all time, is there anything else notable there that you would like to talk about here? Well, I think that, I believe it's the third film, is it? The, is it, yeah, the Jean Dielman by Chantal Ackerman, you know, is that she was probably the great so-called hard art film director of ever, maybe, in, 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 and certainly among women. You know, she's in that category with people like Godard, Formally inventive, slightly forbidding. Um, you know, Jean Dielman is not a lot of fun, um, but it's a great film. And we basically just follow a woman as she's making meatloaf and, and you're, you know, and, and doing just around her house. You watch the lights from the cars going by track across the living room. And I won't give it away what happens, but ne nevertheless, it is it's an experience of film that is radical and feminist without ever announcing that it is that. John Powers, critic at large. John, thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. 
Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.